it was one of the many movies in the 90s where you could see Ewan McGregor's penis. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, you could do a whole Ewan McGregor's penis podcast. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, San Diego, but not for much longer. I mean, you say that like I'm leaving forever. I'm I'm going on a vacation to New York, so... Uh, yes. Yes. I'm only gone for a week, and <laughs> you're going to have a guest, and you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains... This episode, we're going to be reviewing The Werewolves Within. We're going to be kind of uh, going back to that one. Uh, it came out during the summer, and we both kind of meant to see it, and we're excited about it, and we thought, you know, this will be the first episode to come out in October. So we wanted to kind of keep things horror, keep things spooky. So uh, we're doing Werewolves Within, and for the streaming homework we announced last weekend, we are going to be reviewing the cult horror comedy Frankenhooker from 1990, um, which is available to watch on Shudder. I believe it's also on Tubi, maybe. And uh, Werewolves Within uh, is still on demand, which is how I watched it. Um, there might be a theater somewhere showing it. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised, it, given the still in theaters, but holiday. They might do, like, you know, a showing now that we're in the spooky season. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, maybe somebody try to shove it into, uh, you know, a werewolf-themed night or something like that. So check your local listings yeah. if you want to see it in person. Uh, before we get into anything, I got to hit you with a tough question. Uh-oh. A really hard one. Oh, God. This was uh, kind of trending online a little while ago. You got to pick one to kill. No. And by killing I hate these, I hate these. Okay. By killing this this actor, you delete their entire filmography from oh, existence. Fuck. I know this. I know what this is. Okay. Yeah, you probably saw it. Denzel, uh -huh. Tom Hanks, uh -huh. Leonardo DiCaprio, uh -huh. or Robert Downey Jr. This one's kind of a easy for me, actually. Um, I didn't think it was that difficult. I was watching a podcast where they were t acting like it was Sophie's Choice, and I, I thought it was fairly obvious, but... I mean, for me, personally... It's everyone has their own taste. Yes. For me, personally, it's Denzel. I just... He, he doesn't have the same catalog that I'm in love with, like literally all the others. I think... Mm -hmm. I mean, Robert Downey Jr., the MCU doesn't exist. Okay. And we know how I feel about the MCU. So he's got to stay. Uh, plus, even beyond the MCU, he's, you know, he's done some good, fun movies. Like, uh, he's done Sherlock Holmes. Those are movies I enjoy. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of his pre-career with weirder stuff like Natural Born Killers and, you know, things like that. So yeah, Robert Otherwise Downey known as his actual film career. 
Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. You, you, why don't you just hang out with Martin Scorsese, drink your fucking snob cocktails. I would love and to. eat shit. And just talk uh, about Rossellini movies all day. Yeah. Uh, Leo, I think is... I I honestly think that Leonardo DiCaprio is probably the best working actor of our generation. Uh, I think he is insanely talented and he just turns out incredible movie after incredible movie. His movies are always interesting. Uh, Yeah. Uh, we talked he, about Leo not very long ago. Um, and I think my conclusion with Leo is I I like his taste in movies more than I necessarily always like him. Um, but I'm always drawn to his work because he's always in shit I want to see. Exactly. Um, I, and I so if I deleted his catalog, that's like, you know, a handful of some of my favorite movies. I, well, again, I, I when I say I think he's the best... Um, actor of our generation i mm-hmm. i mean like kind of in the classical sense uh yes i mean how could we live without critters three okay uh <laughs> or marvin's room and then um uh <laughs> who's the other one so the denzel oh tom hanks tom, i mean tom fucking hanks again his back cat uh, you know now what was the last relevant thing he's done in a while it's been a minute mm-hmm. but He's, again, churned out some of, you know, there's a reason he's considered America's dad. Uh, You lose the (laughs) Toy Story movies. You lose. I mean, yes, you do lose those. Um, You also lose, you know, Saving Private Ryan. And and you know what? There's there's a tricky one here, because Mm -hmm. if you pick either Tom Hanks or Leonardo DiCaprio, you lose Catch Me If You Can. Both of their some of their greatest work, yes. And now, do not get me wrong. Denzel is quality. He's a great actor. He, you know, he's done some great movies. But I just, for me personally, his catalog just doesn't resonate with me the same way all these other actors do. We know why. We okay. know why. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, it, for me, it's between Denzel and Robert Downey Jr. I think I I think I lose more movies that I think are pivotal with Robert Downey Jr. Because how can I lose Zodiac? How can I lose Less Than Zero? How can I lose, you know, um, he's just done a lot of really interesting movies. Now, actually, since he's done the Marvel Cinematic Universe, outside of that, his work has not been that great. You said like, you could give up Doolittle? I could give up Doolittle. <laughs> I could give up The Soloist. I could give up, you know, I mean, he, he, go down the, the Judge. He's done a lot of these kind of whatever movies sure. about every four years because yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. been I mean, living on Iron Man money. Well, he's been doing the one for them, one for me thing, but yeah, the ones well, for I'm, him... I the one for them is specifically Disney until he quit doing those. Um, yeah. And hopefully that bears fruit and he's going to do like actual movies again. But um, Here, I mean, honestly, realistically, if it wasn't for the MCU, mm-hmm. it would probably be a little bit harder between Robert Downey and Denzel. I think if. I mean, for me, I, I, you know, like, I like a handful of the MCU movies, like, enough that I would want, like, would feel but bad I mean, about deleting them erasing, from... If we're erasing Robert Downey Jr. from continuity... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just thinking, like, 
would the MCU even be a thing? Probably not. And well, I, think it's- I mean, th- you then it goes into like. Is it like a last action hero kind of situation where now it's the Iron Man poster, but it's, um, I don't know, Sam Rockwell as Iron Man or something? I don't think so, man. <laughs> I I honestly think that, I, I think that Robert We're Denny in this Jr. weird alternate reality where he never existed, so all of those movies still exist, but he's just not in them? I don't think so. I, I honestly think that he is probably the only actor that was integral to the success of the MCU. It, when right. the first Iron Man yeah. hit, it hit at the right time, especially in his career. It hit at the right time for superhero movies. It was just a lot of. I I don't yeah. think it would have worked the same way with an lightning actor. in a bottle, lightning yeah. in a bottle. And if if it, yeah, it, who knows what how successful it would have been without him? It might have just been another Green Lantern or something. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, I still think it would have been better than that, but uh, but yes, I, obviously his persona is a big reason why people were excited about that movie and went to see other Marvel movies. I mean, if they'd started out with Captain America, who knows if there would have been an MCU? You know, no shade on Captain America: First Avenger, but it's it's not quite the same kind of honey trap that you know the first Iron Man was. Same same for Thor. Like I I yeah. think you know again I I just don't think a. It works, and I mean, again, no, um, no shade to Denzel. I I think he's a great actor. I'm actually pretty excited for uh, him in Macbeth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joel I'm excited Cohen. about that. I mean, he has a ton of great movies. You know, his work with Spike Lee. You know, Malcolm X, Mo Better Blues. Um, well, and you know, and even his glory like, genre stuff because like, obviously yeah. I Training Day like American Gangster he's done some fucking movies exactly. like he's he's a heavy hitter for a reason that's why this is supposed to be a hard question obviously with culturally he's going to be more relevant in different parts of the world for different reasons I mean um, that's true and I mean let's be real like he he was one of the. He was one of the, the, you know, the big black superstars. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black actors to reach that stratosphere that typically they don't write the roles for. Right. And it was like it was like him and Will Smith, and that was kind of it. And Will Smith was more of a comedic guy for a long time. And yeah. at the time that Denzel was like, you know, he was in Philadelphia. Uh, so, oh, if you get rid of Denzel, you don't have Philadelphia. Oh, and even that's if you Tom Hanks. also has Tom Hanks, unless we're going by Last Action Hero rules, where now that role goes to like an aging no, Sidney Poitier or something. I'm going by if it <laughs> if they're gone, it erases their whole catalog. Well, fuck that. I don't know. This might be a weirder question than we thought of. Yeah, we need a flow chart or something to kind of figure <laughs> this out. Um, let's go ahead and get into the first segment. That was just kind of get our brains going. Okay. Uh, let's, this is actually a segment you propose, so I'll let you describe it. What are we doing? Let's come up with the scariest non-horror movies. So these are specifically movies that are not of the horror genre, not sold on the scares, mm-hmm. uh, but have, you know, either like a really scary sequence that stood out and traumatized us or whatever. Sure. Uh, or you know, to me, has the vibes of a horror movie without being an air quotes horror movie in air quotes. Yes, and I'm sure we'll get into the discussion of, like, 
horror versus thriller and is there really a distinction and if there is where is it is it a know it when you see it kind of thing or you know i mean um, personally i i think it is but i also kind of hate that distinction um so it's interesting you know that i would even pitch this segment um right i mean if i i think i tried to stay away from like genre thrillers that are just sort of bloodless horror movies you know what I mean? I'm like, not, I'm not sure that I do. We'll we'll get into it, but specifically, like if I thought something was borderline, I tried to stay away from it. Yeah, there's like I'm not going to say like Silence of the Lambs because no, that's no, obviously no, no, no. Yeah, a fucking exactly. horror movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I kind of tried to I tried to specifically not pick movies that are like borderline thriller horror, right? Like. Right, yeah. uh, like I think Gone Girl is one of the scariest movies I've seen in a long time, but to me that is a that is a pretty clear thriller. That is meant to sort of toe that line. Uh, oh, yeah. certainly, yeah. I mean, and it, and it's you know it goes for it in its own ways. You could go down Fincher's catalog as far as that goes. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, including Zodiac, which is a really fucking good movie. Um, yeah. Um, so, but anyways, go ahead. Okay. We'll each pick a few. Let's go ahead and try and pick three each just to keep it quick. Um, yeah. I did pick five in case you took one of mine, um, but I'll let you pick first. No, 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 no. No, this is my segment. You always make me go first. This time, you okay. go first. All right. I'll do it. The one that immediately came to mind, um, because I've always said, you know, this was a non-drama a or whatever that was shot like a horror film and specifically mm. shot like a horror film um, is Requiem for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky. Um, you know, it's a, it's a movie about addicts, heroin addicts um, and junkies and, um, and like, you know, the progression of, of addiction and, uh, you know, the, the depraved lengths people will go to get their fix. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of like told in these, you know, there's multiple characters and they're in each other's lives, but they all got kind of got their own issue their own problem. And the movie sort of has an individual arc with each of them as they inter intersect. But yeah, I mean, at that time, especially, and you could still see this in Aronofsky's work. Um, he's a lot more interested in atmosphere, in, in ratcheting up tension and kind of creating this sense of dread than he is necessarily doing a, you know, a sincere uh, uh, PSA against um, addiction or, or drugs or whatever. He sort of uses that as the framework to do a genre film. Totally. Um, yeah. I, so, full disclosure, I've never seen Requiem for a Dream. Um, you should. I know you got the, the Jared Leto hang up. This is, you know, it's still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed coming right off of uh, My So-Called Life and all of that I stuff. I think my love of Jennifer Connelly makes up for it. And she's great in this movie. Um, Ellen Burstyn uh, was nominated, uh, you know, she was quite old during the time of this film. Um, and uh, there is, there's a, it's an Aronofsky film, so, you know, you've seen Black Swan, mm -hmm. you've um, you've seen, I mean, probably The Wrestler is the most grounded thing he's ever done. Um, but if you've seen his other work, you know, especially Black Swan, like apply that kind of histrionics 
to the addiction genre. Sure. Um, and that's kind of what you get. It, and, and, you know, if you've ever seen Pi, his first film, which is also very good, um, he was still using that, like, quick cut, like, hip-hop editing uh, that kind of creates this, you know, uh, this kind of rhythm to everything. And he sort of locks you into or eases you into a rhythm with that with that kind of hip-hop editing. And then when the movie tilts into full crazy mode, um, you 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 don't notice how uh, he's already completely manipulated you into his editing. So, cool. I mean, it, it's probably still in his top two or three best films for a reason. And I think some people who are not sympathetic to his style tend to think that it's like over the top and like the drugs are bad movie. Um, and like, I, I would agree with that, that it is almost, it almost kind of comes off as parody because it's so insane. But I, again, I think his interest is not in, not even necessarily the story he's telling, but so much in, what he can do with it as a director. He's way more interested in manipulating the audience with, with uh, his prowess as a director um, than he is necessarily like, you know, um, being honest about the subject matter, maybe. Um, right. And, and that's, you know, mileage may vary on what you're allowed to, f uh, how you're allowed to feel about that. But I think it's a really good, and and very very tense movie. I mean, by the end of it, you're just not feeling great. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people it's like a one time watch. I I do return to it because I think there's so much you can learn from it. Just you know, studying it as a as a piece of film. But um, yeah, there are some people it's a bit too much. All right. Um. So my first pick for uh. The scariest non-horror movie. Okay, I know I we said at the beginning that we were trying to avoid genre fair. Um, my pick is, I think, a victim of when it came out, when it re was released. I think if it had come out nowadays, it would have been marketed as a horror comedy. Okay. Um, uh, but my pick is The Cable Guy. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. I think is basically a horror movie. It follows the same structure as like a horror thriller, like, um, like, you know, basic instinct or, sure. uh, fatal attraction, the good son exactly. It's playing, it's playing on those tropes that the, you left these, the stranger into your life and he ruins it from within kind of yeah, thing. But yeah. in this case, it was a comedy that came out in the nineties at the fucking peak of Jim Carrey's career. Right. And because of that, it kind of bombed because it wasn't what people wanted from Jim Carrey at the time. I think people are a little bit more accepting of blended genres now. Uh, right. You know, now yeah. that you can just sort of stream whatever the fuck you want. Um, but, you know, they marketed it as a Jim Carrey comedy. Right. And it is very funny. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, it is a comedy more than anything else. Yeah. It, yeah, but I still think that it is pretty unsettling. Like, there's mm -hmm. some very dark stuff. Uh, there's a nightmare sequence in particular that is both played for laughs, but is still, like, pretty creepy, where he's got, like, oh. the black light eyes and stuff. Right, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, so 
it was not intended to be a horror movie. It was not intended to be scary, but I still think it's pretty dark and pretty creepy. It's, you know, like mm-hmm. the actual story it's telling is is pretty disturbing and, and sad, too. Like it, it's mm-hmm. uh, actually if you, I mean, Jim Carrey, it's an interesting movie for a lot of reasons. I think this is one of the first Ben Stiller directed movies. And it was, um, you know, Jim Carrey's trying to kind of break out of his his uh, uh, typecast a little well, bit. Definitely, yeah. Like he's doing it within a framework that you know allows for him to still kind of do his shtick, mm-hmm. but but he is kind of like telling, asking his audience to grow with him a little bit, and you could tell because after this movie, his work starts to become increasingly more dramatic over the next few years, and. I think actually what sells it even more than Jim Carrey being, you know, gigantic in every scene is Matthew Broderick as the straight man in that movie. Well, because- I think what sells it is just everything uh, behind the movie. Like the way it's shot totally straight, you know, it's shot like one of those types of movies. Mm. It just has some really funny jokes in it. Uh and right. you're right, Matthew Broderick totally sells it as a straight man. He acts like he's in a movie like he like he's he's acting as if he is in Basic Instinct, yeah, or he is in Fatal Attraction. He's not playing it for laughs at all. Totally, like, he's and, totally well, he, game but, for comedy. But I but. I also think that Jim Carrey isn't playing it for laughs. I think Jim Carrey mm. he turns in a pretty. I mean. Yeah, there's some funny he's, stuff. He's do, he's doing some big he's doing some big stuff in this movie. Like, I mean, it's a big performance for sure. But he he lets I think Broderick and lets uh, Ben Stiller as the director sort of basic. I've heard the movie compared a little bit to, and this could be a movie that could be on this list, but I actually didn't think about it, and maybe should have. Um, but it was compared a little bit when it first came out to um, Scorsese's uh, The King of Comedy. Oh, I, I... In which... I've never... That that one is kind of on my list of shame. That's one that I know I need to see at some point. Yes. And that was a similar movie because it was Scorsese kind of doing a dark comedy. But you have, you know, Robert De Niro, who kind of plays this pathetic leech you know social parasite kind of thing who is um has some sort of disassociative problem and he's almost so good at doing that the internal stuff that it kind of um uh makes it not a comedy anymore no matter how much the movie wants it to be because he's just too good at creating an an inner character that's that's um convincing um and so that movie was like kind of panned when it first came out and then people rediscovered it a decade later and said actually this is you know this is like the flip side of Travis Bickle this is you know they're similar characters right. um and that's kind of yeah, like I need to see it that's kind of like what Jim Carrey was doing here it's just like uh basically the premise of of uh of Ben Stiller when he approached this I think I I mean I've never had a conversation with the guy but I would imagine the idea was what if the Jim Carrey thing um, existed in the real world and he didn't know how off-putting that actually is in person? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's actually a really great summary of it. Yeah. So what is what is your next pick? 
Where do I want to go? I got some heavy hitters. I, I got some heavy hit hitters. You only got two left. Yeah. Let's do the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Oh, I don't know this one. Um, this this was an uh, English film. Um, star uh, stars Helen Mirren and um, Dumbledore. What was the, the second guy who played him? Yeah. I know who you're talking about, though. Tim Roth is in it. A bunch of people. This came out in 1989. This was one of the... This was like during that period of time. I think I might have mentioned it in this context before. When they were trying to sort of legitimize the NC-17. Um, and it, was a, it, it was an independent film directed by Peter Greenaway. And um, it's, a, it's, it's basically a crime film about a mob heavy's wife having an affair... And then, you know, the consequences of that. But it is told in the most garish camp to the to a level of of insanity and um, depraved way. Uh, Ari Aster actually said when he was thinking of both Hereditary and Midsummer that this was an inspiration to him. And you can see that um, to a certain extent. Uh, the Ari Esther's movies are a lot more kind of like sober to a certain extent. I mean, his movies are like, you know, take place in a more kind of realistic reality. Whereas this movie is when you're watching it, you are, it's, it all, it's almost shot like a stage play, like everything sort of, you know, this extreme, um, wide frame, the, these long panning camera shots that go across multiple rooms and characters that are kind of exist in their own worlds within these rooms. Um, it's all sort of done in these, these, you know, hyper stylized, super colorful way. Like a character will enter one room in one, in one color and then will be in a completely different colored costume in the next room that they're in and the movie, you know, kind of just continues, but that's just a minor detail. But, um, yeah, you know, when you watch this thing, you go like, well, what is this NC 17 rating for exactly? And I think it's just a cumulative. It's just that the movie is like, so almost irritating in its presentation. And it's so extreme, um, stylistically, and some of the, you know, the graphic stuff that does occur, even though it's not necessarily shot graphically, like a horror film or like a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a thriller or anything like that, it, it's, it's, it's presented almost like something that's supposed to be sort of artistic and beautiful, but it's, it's almost makes it even more depraved that it's presented that way. I mean, it is just, it's, I saw this in theater as well. Uh, I watched it streaming first and then later caught a, uh, a screening of it in, um, in LA, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of difficult to watch beautiful, but, but also a abrasive film watching experience. Okay. Cool. I mean, I can't really sell it. Like you can't really describe what it is. You just watch it and see it unfold. Yeah. No, I, I... I mean, I don't know if you ever saw Peter Greenaway's other movie that people are somewhat familiar with, uh, the, the Pillow Book, with, um... Okay, well, it was one of the many movies in the 90s where you could see Ewan McGregor's penis. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you could do a whole Ewan McGregor's penis podcast. Okay. You, uh, you probably so could, yes. 
for my next this one i feel like toes the genre line pretty closely um so mm-hmm. i i almost feel like like this one is kind of what we were talking about that borderline thriller um thing but yeah. i still feel like it's worth mentioning uh so my next pick is no country for old men see yeah this is one i would avoid because i think it is there's enough horror in there that i think it's 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 too on the line it's a genre movie it's a crime movie it's but i don't think it's a thriller in the same way that silence of the lambs is I so specifically the things that I think make it very scary are obviously Anton Chigurh is one of the scariest villains of all time, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the almost complete lack of score. It's mm-hmm. a very quiet movie, um, and to me that separates it a little bit. That makes it. Uh, I don't know. Again, I. Because it's so centered in the world of crime thriller, that's a little bit different to me than something that's like a serial killer thriller. I mean, he is a he's a paid serial killer, but he's a serial killer. Sure, but I I don't know. Does that distinction make sense? Like a crime thriller is different <laughs> to me than I don't know. I, I, I actually put both of those uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs and No Country in a very similar category, and they're genre hybrids. Um, they're com- sure. You okay. know, I mean, in the case of in the case of uh, uh, Silence, it's combining you know thriller elements with noir with with horror. In the case of um, No Country, it's combining like westerns with noir and horror. With Western, noir, crime, uh, action, thriller, I don't know. Anyway, that's my next one. No country for old men. Well, I don't disagree. I think it is a very tense film. Um, I just, uh, I don't think it's played for, I don't think it's played the same as something like Silence of the Lambs, if that makes sense. I don't know. I, th- I mean, <laughs> I think they're both kind of exist in that world of like, you know, postmodern neo noir. And it's my fucking <laughs> pick. Fuck you. What's your next one? Okay. Um, this is the last one, right? Yeah. I've talked about it before. Well, a good while before. There was a documentary that came out. I want to say 2017. It was called Tickled. Did you ever watch it? No. This was a documentary is made by a New Zealand journalist who was looking into he just he's kind of a Louis Thoreau type where he was just looking for kind of weird human interest pieces, something he could kind of write about or follow up on, shoot something. And he found this kind of underground world online of competitive tickling contests what? where young men around the age of, I don't know, early 20s or so, would do these videos where they're being tied down. um, And then, you know, these people above, you know, whose faces are uh, hidden above frame are 
going to town on them, you know, tickling them with their fingers and they pull out different like floggers and and feathers and stuff like that. And the idea is to see how long you can go before you break and laugh. And there was what seemed to be just like a tip of the iceberg when he sort of discovers this. And then when he goes, he flies to L.A. to sort of interview the subjects um, who were in these videos uh, and then also try and find the company who was producing them. And then he is immediately hit, uh, uh, his email is hit by um, very strong worded emails telling him that if he looks any further into this, he is going to be met with hardcore legal trouble. And so, of course, he has to follow up on it. And um, he finds that this underground world of uh, kind of like fetish tickle videos uh, goes a lot deeper and a lot darker than you can imagine. Um, and it, it involves uh, um, a lot of sketchy shit um, where young people who don't know what they're signing up for end up, um, uh, you know, in long, years-long battles with uh, several different companies who may or may not be, like, subsidiaries owned by the same weird guy or girl. We're not sure for a while. Um, and... Um, you know, they're being told that if they're t they tell their families or if they try and get any money from this or blah, 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 that their lives are going to be destroyed. And so basically, this is a this is a documentary, um, but it becomes a horror film about the dangers of the Internet and the dangers right. of the dangers of doxing and the dangers of sextortion. All right. Leave it to you to pick movies that no one has ever heard of or ever seen. This got a decent amount of press back in 2017. Um, I, I believe it made my top 10 of that year. Uh, but it, it is, I mean, and, you know, there's a follow, it, it, I believe um, HBO put it out, and there was a follow up documentary that came out a little while later that kind of ties up some of the stuff. Um, uh, and I, I recommend both, but, um, and I think the, the, the same guy, who made that documentary has a show on Netflix now where he just, he goes into like weird and dangerous. Um, um, like he went to Chernobyl and stuff like that. It's called like weird tours or oh, something I, like that. I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's like dangerous travels or something. Yeah. I, I watched a few of those episodes and that's a fun show, but I think that the, the craft of this documentary, again, kind of like, kind of like, um, Requiem for a Dream, it it just the the tension just keeps winding and winding, and the deeper he gets in it, he starts to become more paranoid of like who's wa watching him and how, is he being followed and uh, you know how many people work for this organization and it just gets crazy. All right, well, shit, yeah, I might uh, check that out sometime. It's a good one. It's a good cool. one. Okay, for my last ch choice, I am shifting gears uh, quite a bit, actually. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of movies, like, from our childhood that stand out as weird or creepy in different ways due to sure. various yeah. elements. Usually it's due to visual effects or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the one I'm picking, and there you could pick basically any of them that we grew up with for different reasons. The one I'm picking uh, is The NeverEnding Story. Okay. Uh, because I think it... So, you know, it's sold as a child's fantasy movie. 
there is just a dark undercurrent throughout that entire movie um, that just makes it a little bit darker and a little bit more nihilistic than the rest. Uh, right. You know, it, it, it captures this sort of apocalyptic feel in a way that I think most apocalyptic movies doesn't capture. It just gives you that feeling of pure nothingness. Uh, and, you know, there are obviously scary moments like uh, Gamork, the wolf, um, mm-hmm. but even the stuff that's meant to be more fantastical, like the giant fucking turtle that sneezes, uh, is <laughs> terrifying. You know, it, it's, I don't know if it's, again, if it's just the way the effects are used, if it's the lighting, um, and, you know, there's a lot of, like, weird little mini fables within it, like the, uh, the two Sphinx Towers that, you know, will annihilate you if your heart isn't pure or whatever. Right, or if you answer the question wrong or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that specific scene bothered me more than anything else. Yeah, it's I, but I mean, that's what I mean. The whole movie uh-huh. is kind of like that. And it all centers around this kid who's, you know, like stuck in an attic by himself because, you know, he's all alone. Uh, and it's a depressing movie and it's a scary movie. Uh, right. Far more so than I think than I think was even intended. Maybe, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of that. Like, did Jim Henson do the effects in that? I think so. And and I mean, I mean, yeah. he was the guy at that time. But but that was that one was directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who normally didn't make children's movies, and that might be the reason why it feels the way it feels. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a it is a shade darker than like even like. Dark Crystal Labyrinth stuff. Yeah, which those have, like, scary moments. You know, they have those moments that you're like, ooh, the Skeksis are creepy, which they are. Like, you know, uh, the father (laughs) is a kid and stuff. But but there was something about the never-ending story, just the bleakness of it. uh, Yeah. I I think made it stand out kind of above the rest. Uh, You weren't enchanted by Falcor? I mean, I, of course I am. Falcor's great. Falcor's like <laughs> one of the few light notes of that movie. <laughs> but even him, even his design yeah. is like a little weird and creepy, you know? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a giant dog with corn for a stomach. Um, and then, of course, that you only meet Falcor after we get a devastating scene of the, the lead character's horse drowning in mud. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> if not scary one of the most depressing scenes in all of uh, cinema like it's it that's what i mean it's just the whole movie has sort of this malaise attached to it and sure you know i think a lot of that a lot of it has to do with you know uh anxieties associated with uh, being being a a child being a kid and not feeling accepted and that kind of stuff yeah i mean it all wraps into the um to the uh, the framing device of the kid who's hiding from bullies reading a book, and he reads himself into the story. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, I mean, it, you know, in the end of the story, like, the whole world crumbles down. It's like, it's yeah, just, it's you know. a, it's kind of a fucking weird movie. It's a trip, yeah. Um, okay, uh, did you want to, like, just rattle off the, the last two you picked and you didn't get to talk about? Here I'll go I'll, I'll go since you last talked uh, on that on that um that feel the like 
scary puppet movies from the 80s. I went with uh, Jan Schrankmeier's Alice. Uh, he was a Scandinavian filmmaker. He made a lot of... So fucking weird. He made a lot of uh, stop-motion-y things. Um, and this was his version of Alice in Wonderland, and it is just scary. There's literally nothing about it that's en- that's fun or enchanting. Um, it, it, like, it looks like... Like the rabbits and stuff in it all look like weird taxidermy come to life and like these like chattering teeth really fast. It all kind of looks like an old tool music video or something. And yeah, it's, it's not American. So it has that kind of like, like Scandi weirdness. Okay. What was Um, your last one? The last one I didn't pick only because I'm, this might be the most arguable for whether or not it is a horror film. Um, and that is uh, Solo or the 100 Days of Sodom. Um, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, an Italian art film um, that came out in the 70s about uh, it's sort of a retelling of of um, the Marquis, Marquis de Sade's 100 Days of Sodom. Um, uh, but it's told in a small town, like right around the, towards the end of World War II, of uh, uh, fascist ruled Italy and about these fascist aristocrats who kidnap a caravan of teenagers and then torture them for, uh, you know, a hundred plus days, um, in all sorts of, uh, weird ways that are supposed to mirror the seven rings of hell. Um, Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, you're basically just watching like ritualistic, um, sexual abuse on what is supposed to be children for two hours shot beautifully. Okay. But it's, uh, it is, you know, most people will say it is one of the harder films to watch and yeah, endure. I- I don't want to watch it. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sharp contrast. Uh, my last pick, one of my last picks was E.T. Um, I don't give a fuck what anybody says. That movie is terrifying. I get that E.T. is supposed to be your friend, but like the scene where he takes his trash out and it's just that that's always given me nightmares where he's like hiding in the closet. Fuck that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you're supposed to fall in love with this nightmare testicle beast, uh, the government <laughs> comes in and makes everything way scarier when he's like sick and dying. So right, right, right. Um, yeah, a lot of people have great memories of this movie. Think it's a family movie, not to me. I hate it. I think it's terrifying. <laughs> uh, and then the last one I didn't pick, kind of for the same reasons as No Country for Old Men. I. I think some people might consider this a horror movie. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's not. I, But uh, I think Terminator 2. E, I, I think there's an argument you could make either way. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was necessarily intended to be. I think it's meant more to be like a sci-fi action movie. Yeah. Um, I would say the first one actually is more intended to be a horror film. Yes. Even yeah. though I think the scares of the second one are better. I agree. Uh, and kind of the same thing with um, Never Ending Story. It has just mm-hmm. like, you know, these scenes of just apocalyptic vision that I think people just can't get nowadays. 
And I also think that's the, you know, I've, I've kind of talked about this before on the podcast. I think that's the problem with every Terminator to movie, movie to come out since is it's lost all the horror elements. They've, they've gone strictly yeah. for the sci-fi action stuff. And it just, at this point, it's like, okay, we're just watching the same thing, but a dumber version of it, and then a dumber version of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but I think that the horror elements of the first two is kind of what made them what they are. Um, For sure. But I specifically think the second one, it wasn't necessarily intended to be that, uh, but that DNA is still there. Yeah, 100%. Um yeah, there's some like uh, shocking graphic violence, and what's his name? Richard Patrick. Uh, Patrick Robert Robert pa- Robert Patrick Robert Patrick Richard Patrick, lead singer of Filter, is his little brother. Oh, really? Okay, he, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny uh, because he goes on to be in the X Files. He replaces mm-hmm. Mulder, kind of, and uh, I think he is such a fucking good actor because. W- but he was so identified as the T-1000. It was such an iconic role, and he's so good at it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's funny because in the X-Files, he's, like, so grounded and down to earth. He's just, like, this normal cop. So when Mulder's telling him all of these, like, crazy theories or Scully or whatever, he's just like, yeah, I'm supposed to believe that? I'm supposed to believe his fucking vampires? Like, I'm just oh. a fucking cop with a very... <laughs> Boston question mark accent. All right. Um, Let's go ahead and get into Werewolves Within. This is uh, the new film that was uh, directed by Josh Rubin. Um, We reviewed his last movie, which premiered on Shudder last year, called Scare Me. We liked it a whole lot. Um, This is actually based on a video game. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never played... The video it's, game. I've never played it either, but it, it's a computer game. It's it's like a computer. Have you ever played Werewolf? I was going to get into this when we get into the actual premise of the movie, but yes, it is kind of a uh, a movie version of the game Werewolf, where you know the the um, it's a dinner party kind of game where you're with a bunch of people you may or may not know. You designate one of them to be the killer or the werewolf or the whatever, and then. Um, there's kind of like a heads up seven up thing that occurs where you kill your person and blah, blah, blah. You know, the rules vary from house party to house party, but, uh, I assume that the video game kind of, um, follows that to a certain extent. Yeah. I don't, I've never played it. So I don't neither have I, I mean, of the two of us, you play more video games than I. So I figured I would let you talk about it if you have. But it, 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 it seems to me like they kind of took this premise pretty loosely and just ran with it. So the the main character here is named Finn Wheeler. He is new to this small town, middle of winter, uh, kind of a rural community. Um, and he is to be set to be the new um, ranger, park ranger of this area. And he's kind of getting a tour of the town and the limited families and neighbors that he's going to be living around um, by uh, Cecily Moore, the town's new uh, male person who's kind of giving him the scoop on everyone's gossip. And as he goes around, he meets, you know, all these different characters that uh, he interacts with through the rest of the film. 
Um, and they all kind of have their own drama going on and their own, you know, their own, their own paranoias and things like that. Uh, there's a, a rich industrialist who's trying to put in a pipeline and some of the people who live there are excited to get the money for the pipeline. And then some of them don't want the, 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 their homes to be destroyed or their nature to be destroyed. And so there's a little bit of tension in town from that. Um, and then, uh, the night that he decides to to get settled into this town, um, there is a an attack that kills one of the townspeople's dog um, and leaves uh, what seems like giant claw marks all around the the site where this apparently happened. This also leads to the discovery of a dead body, um, and then before you have it, the power goes out. Everyone's shoved into a tiny hotel. And everyone's trying to figure out who is the werewolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of characters and a lot of character actors in this. Um, you know, who uh, the industrialist is played by Wayne Duvall. Uh, we have Cheyenne Jackson in here, um, uh, who is uh, married to Harvey Gullen. They're like rich city folk who are trying to gentrify this little area. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Catherine yeah, I mean, Curtin of- is plays the 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 hotel manager whose husband um, disappeared some time before all this of these whole, events occur. This whole movie is cast with oh I know that person type of people like uh, yeah you know, it's everybody they- who they could afford to get in this movie but is still a recognizable face yeah like uh, Glenn Fleshler plays kind of a creep in every HBO series yeah uh, including True Detective Michaela Watkins uh, really great character actor George Basil recently popped up on. Uh, Pete Holmes show crashing. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, you're Michael gonna see. Turnus. Yeah, you're gonna Michael- see a lot of kind of that level of of actor here, and everyone is doing a ton of character work. Um, I I I think this movie you can add in the pantheon lately of um, movies that want to be Clue but aren't Clue. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, you know, we talked about uh, how. There's been movies recently that's definitely sort of picked up on that vibe, like Knives Out and like mm. um, uh, Ready or Not, uh, kind of more of a horror take on that. Um, yeah, and this is, I mean, I think this is, you know, also kind of a horror comedy. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not quite as gruesome as Ready or Not. I think that one's a lot more kind of a splatter movie. But uh th- but yes, yeah, so these both of these movies are horror comedies. Yeah, and it, um, it 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 definitely has its moments, but yeah, not maybe not quite as um not quite as gory per yeah. se. Um I I felt conflicted about this movie. I did a little bit too. There's stuff I definitely like. Mm-hmm. Um I, and there's stuff I definitely don't like. Um and I, th- I what I think it kind of comes down to is I really like Josh Rubin's eye. Um, I think I, especially for horror, I think he has, he like, you know, he knows how to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, what kind of fell short and what often falls short in these kind of things is the comedy. Um, some of the comedy elements, I think felt a little more forced to me, which 
is not any fault of any of the actors. Like you said, we've got a bunch of character actors and they're all doing a bunch of character things. Right. Uh, at times, I think it feels kind of disparate, though. And those elements don't always come together. Uh, yeah. So this was written by Mishnah Wolf. Uh, this is um, their first screenplay. Uh, Josh Rubin also wrote Scare Me. So um, in this case, he's just here as a director Mm-hmm. Not here as the writer. And I don't know how m- I would imagine big cast, big, a lot of funny people in this movie. I'm sure there was a decent amount of, um, you know, stuff that came up on set and whatever. So it's, I doubt the shooting script was identical to what, what sure, they started yeah, yeah. out with, just based upon the type of movie it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just, I, you can tell that the actors are definitely encouraged to build a character and, you know, kind of create this, like, guess who world well and and i think all of that is fine i think the characters just oftentimes don't come together kind of the way they should i i think i think it's it's a movie with a bunch of characters but it's it's meant to be an ensemble cast but it never quite feels like the ensemble is strong enough you know what i mean like it, it just never quite feels like any the right person is necessarily hitting at the right time. I think for me the issue was, and I noticed this towards the middle when because I, I, I kind of like the first act when we're just meeting everybody, figuring out their thing, getting to know these characters, getting to know um, our you know our two leads in uh, Sam Richardson and uh, Milana. Von Traub? Yeah, and, and um, I, I do want to say I do think both of their performances are very charming, and they're they're both very likable, lovable characters. And, and it's yeah, and they to... have they have a lot of chemistry in the movie, yeah. and you can tell that like Josh Rubin, especially you know, Scare Me was a two was a two hander, and this one kind of is too, even though there's like twelve other hang ons yeah. to to this otherwise. Um, consistent movie with those two and that's the problem is that i think once you get to the middle of the movie and you get all of these characters in the same room that you know they start to talk over each other and there's they're, they're oftentimes just kind of arguing and we know enough about them to kind of know why they're arguing but i don't feel like i feel like the comedy kind of gets suffocated in these scenes you know, multiple scenes in a row of them just kind of like hashing stuff out and trying to get one up over each other. And yeah. I feel like individually, each of them are doing a fine enough performance. Yeah, exactly. But it's just what in these cluttered, um, kind of shambolic comedy set pieces together, mm-hmm. um, it all just kind of sounds like white noise after a while because nobody's there's 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 not enough space in the screenplay between these exchanges of dialogue for for anything ever to really hit. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I felt and that is to say like I didn't hate this movie. Um I don't think it's No, a and bad that's not a problem consistently through the movie just during key sequences. Yeah, uh cuz for the most part I did enjoy this movie. It is kind, mm. you know, it's it's a fun hang. Yeah, um, yeah. It it just never quite clicks. The way I wanted it to. And I did really like the third act. Once stuff starts happening, um, it starts happening pretty quickly. And 
I, I think you nailed down kind of my problem with this movie is it is kind of a two person show. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's just all these other characters that sort of are in there. And you're right. None of them are doing a bad job. I think all the actors are great. I just, it feels very claustrophobic. Like, I, I think this movie needs, it mm -hmm. needed a little bit more to breathe. It needed a little bit more, I don't know. Uh, uh, I think for a movie like this, and maybe this could have been a budget issue, mm -hmm. but I think for a movie like this, we needed more scenes, like if you look at Clue, there's a lot of characters, and there are scenes like that where they're all arguing and they're all trying to figure stuff out. But there's a lot of scenes where it says, okay, let's split up. And then yeah. we can create some interesting combinations with these characters. Well, and at one point, that's even proposed when they're talking about, like, people are going to be sharing rooms. Mm -hmm. And then the movie sort of abandons that idea. Well, and so, so that that is that is a convention of, of whodunits, of, of, sure. uh, of mystery you know, killer movies is... Well, this one but, should have done it more, is what I'm saying, is I think... No, it, well, well, I think it gets kind of in sort of the the postmodern awareness era that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. Genre tropes are so uh, focused on, and, and like, you know, when you watch a scary movie, you always hear, well, let's split up, and people are like, no, don't do that, that's a stupid idea. And... Of course it is. Of course, in real life, it is a terrible idea. It's the stupidest thing you could do. But the reason for it is not to solve the mystery. The reason right. for it is to get these characters isolated, to create scenes of tension, and to create scenes uh, where characters can interact in various ways. So I, I definitely agree with you there. Like, we needed more kind of... Uh, right, because towards the end of the movie, when some of these characters kind of die or go by the wayside or whatever, and we're starting to pare down a little, mm -hmm. then there's more breath and air in the room. Yeah. And these characters can actually kind of, um, you know, bounce off of each other in more meaningful ways. Whereas that, you know, it, that big chunk in the second act where everything's mm -hmm. really cluttered and kind of just kind of loud and, and sort of obnoxious. Um, yeah. And I was also just like on a story level, the weird hermit guy who lives outside of the the situation. Mm -hmm. I wish they had utilized that character more because he's a really interesting foil for everybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that he he comes in again and he's funny and everything, but I feel like that was a missed opportunity not to use him a little bit more. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you. And I I'm afraid a lot of these are screenwriting issues, but I also am like, am I just biased because I really liked Josh Rubin's first movie? Uh, but there, there's just and some... I, this is not like a, a nosedive sophomore slump. No, like, this not is, at all. He brings what he does, and I and you can tell there's certain little, like... Flourishes, um, yeah. Yes, and obsessions he has, especially with gender dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. And what he does what he did in scare me and how how it plays out in this movie is very similar um and I, and i think that he's he's really interested in kind of human interactions and like the things that sort of bring people together and things that drive people apart for sure um, yeah and i and you can see him kind of still in his wheelhouse and there are times where i'm like i'm watching this and i'm like okay like 
you can tell you really loved Hot Fuzz. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you yeah, can tell, yeah. like, you were definitely kind of picking up uh, some of those early um, Edgar Wright uh, vibes. And I, th- and I think that he's a, a talent to watch still. And I, oh, and I, I, liked, I do too. I liked I, it, this movie enough. And I would still recommend it to people who like horror comedy. I, uh, yes, that is, to, I agree with everything you're saying. Like, it, it sounds like I'm kind of shitting on this movie, but I still enjoyed it. I just, I yeah. was a little disappointed because I liked Scare Me so much. But I think this movie might be a little more fun on a rewatch. Yeah, um, I could see that. Yeah. And I think it also, you know, if you're looking for something with the Halloween vibes, this has that as fuck. Um mm-hmm. and, also you know, it, it's mid-winter not too scary for people who aren't, you know, hardcore horror hounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also a good midwinter horror film. Yeah. Uh, to me that's a a whole separate era. I have there are horror films I watch in the summer, there are horror films I watch in the fall. And there are horror films I watch specifically in the winter. So this would go alongside Misery and uh, The Thing. You don't have any springtime um, horror movies? I don't know. I, I haven't thought about it. But, I, yeah, I mean, this movie's good. It's it's not it's not bad. It's just... No. And if you haven't seen Scare Me, there's no reason you would watch this and, and uh, compare the two. And which is, I think specifically what we're doing yeah i Um, I think i definitely have a bias but i mean yeah i think that movie is a little bit that movie's a little bit more daring it's a little bit more original it's not biting off more than it can chew whereas this movie is a little messier um in in the in the upgrade that we get from you know budgets and things like that but i don't but i i'm i still am mostly cool with this movie i give it like a b a solid b yeah i yeah. i agree i think a b is right where this movie is it's yeah it's still fun it's still a good watch like i said it's still a, a good hang movie um, yeah it, it just doesn't ever elevate itself to kind of anything more and that's right. fine yeah. uh not every movie has to to change you know the game yeah, I wish um, it had kind of tackled the horror stuff a little sooner because I feel like it kind of by the third act it feels like it's making up for lost time. Yeah, when, it, when it, all the violence starts to happen, I feel like we, it, that could have started earlier in the film, been a little more doled out. Yeah, yeah. and also kind of go for a, a little bit more. I think there's, you know, if you watch this like right after ready or not this is going to feel like pretty tame in comparison and totally, i don't think it yeah. it necessarily has to be as splattery as yeah, ready it, ready it, or it, not but it, i think maybe something edging a little closer to that would have been a little better i mean it's still got the r rating so yeah go for it uh, i i also yeah. think um this is supposed to be a whodunit movie mm-hmm. um I, this is you know and that's kind of what the game is based on I do think the mystery elements, uh, uh, this might be edging towards a spoiler, but I do think the kind of end was a little predictable for me. Sure. Um, and, and I mean, I, I think there's a handful of, there's a, there's like three or four characters that you yeah. can kind you can kind of whittle it down to. It's not, there, there's some, there's some definite red herrings and maybe it's just because yeah. I'm very familiar with, 
this genre because we specifically did like a, an improvised murder mystery for mm-hmm. a, a solid while. And it was one of my favorite genres to do because it's so much fun. Um, so mm-hmm. there might be some bias there, but I, I did see the ending coming from about the second act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually thought based upon like the type of movie it is, it could have like a literal clue ending where you do the ending with three or four different results. Okay. <laughs> um, and that might've been fun, you know? I mean, I could see that being like DVD extra or something like that. Um, yeah, why is clue the, the only movie that gets to do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm honestly surprised. I mean, I was actually Terminator's kind of, not the only movie with time traveling killer robots. Surprisingly not. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I I gave it a B. Did you give it the same thing? Um, I think I'm giving it a B minus. It just there were there were a few things that I just wanted to be a little bit tighter. But I, I'm basically in the same ballpark as you. Um, and, and like I said, that might change if I rewatch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think my expectations were pretty high for it though. So mine were a little bit too. There were there was a lot of like positive buzz online about this movie and yeah and and you know for good reason. I can see like going to see this in, in a theater and walking out and having a blast with it. It's it's not a bad time at the movies. It's yeah. Just- I, again, I think I think a lot of it comes from being so hyped on Scare Me. Um, yeah. Like it was one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I was just very, like, excited to see what Josh Rubin did next. And, again, I'm not disappointed. Um, I think everybody's doing a fine job here. It just, it was a little, like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. But I do think it's a solid movie. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and get into the streaming homework then. And that is... Uh, 1990s Frankenhooker. Keith, what is Frankenhooker about? Okay, so Frankenhooker is possibly the most trauma movie to exist. Um, <laughs> it's about uh, <laughs> this young man. He's sort of a scientist with low ambition, uh, a doctor specifically. Um, you know, like doing medical experiments in the living room and stuff. And at his in-laws birthday party or future in-laws his fiance uh gets unfortunately mauled to death by a runaway lawnmower and so he decides that he is going to try and put her back together with the pieces he has but he doesn't have enough of her physical body left to recreate her specifically so he decides he's going to improve upon uh, sort of the things maybe he wasn't so keen about of her physically uh, and build her a new body made out of sex workers. Yes, uh, from New uh, York. Well, yeah, sp- prostitutes, hookers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the name. Also, if you think that description is it's hilarious, this might be the movie for you. I don't know. I... I had a hard time with this one. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, see, you said this is like the perfect tra- or the the most trauma movie. I actually think it's not because to me this feels a little too highbrow for the majority <laughs> of trauma movie. To me, like 
the comedy is a lot more knowing and intentional and specific. I mean, trauma movies are always like kind of funny. Like they're not always serious, but um, this one I think is, is more comedy than the others. And I think that the, the performances across the board are a lot better than your average trauma film. Okay, um, I, uh, sure. Maybe here's the thing. Here's what specifically bothered me about this movie. Uh, this movie isn't terrible, but, there is so much filler in this movie. This movie should have been 45 minutes long. But what you get is a lot of uh, James Lawrence as uh, Jeffrey... Uh, Franken. Jeffrey Franken. Mm. Just sort of mumbling nonsense science to himself. Uh-huh. And that goes on way too long and there is way too much of it there is a solid 20 minutes of him just going like uh okay so i could take this uh yeah and then uh divide that by em equals mc square uh and we'll remove this mole and then uh, okay and then he like puts a fucking drill in his head and i just i, I thought the drill was stuff was funny i actually think i actually think uh Jeffrey Lawrence is is really good in the role. I think he um I don't had this had it been like an a normal lower tier kind of like adult film actor that they got to be in this movie kind of thing like a lot of trauma movies. Sure. Um I think this movie would have suffered a whole lot more. I than- don't think I want to be clear. I don't think he's bad. I think mm. that there is like literal pages of script missing where they're like just make up some science bullshit. And it's yeah. obvious. And and what I'm saying is there's way too much of that. The premise yeah. itself is fine. There's some funny parts, mm-hmm. but they're too stretched out between nonsense. Like and and just scenes that are funny go on way too long. So there's specifically the scene where he cooks some super meth for these prostitutes. Yeah. And that's kind of funny. Uh, and then when he's talking, when he's talking to the to the uh, guinea pig, and talking yeah, about that's like a I, funny bit. That's I, a funny if I, section. If I but was a guinea pig, I'd get in that cage there with you. But that bit doesn't go on for eight minutes too long, sure. where a lot of the other bits do. I'll say this: the movie is padded. Yeah, and it's only it's 80, very bad. It's I only eighty eighty four minutes long. Um, and and it, what I'm saying is, it could have been forty five minutes. And if it was forty five minutes, it, I think it would have been a lot funnier. There's well, I just th- so I think specifically it, they should have introduced the Franken Hooker. Yes, much oh er- much earlier in the movie. I was I was looking at the runtime, and I was having a a good enough time but i was like there's not that much movie left and we still don't have a frankenhooker yeah um, she's, she's in like the last 20 minutes and a, here's the thing i think all that stuff is great i think she yeah. uh 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 patty mullen is hilarious i think yeah. she is great and she because of this like souped up meth in her veins and uh the the electricity in in her these guys like you know try to have sex with her and like uh you know she's brainless like she doesn't know who she is she's literally made up of like eight hookers uh right. and so you know like there's a lot of these like creepy like leering guys 
taking advantage of her. But the, anytime anybody engages with her sexually, she like explodes them. Right. I thought that all of that was great. Uh, yeah. I thought the last 20 minutes were fine. Um, it, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the last 10 minutes or so, there's some genuinely like gross kind of scary stuff. Uh, you get some, uh, some like sticky wet puppet action yeah, towards, which, towards which, the last 10 minutes or so. You know, there's like a, a 16 boobed mouth creature. Uh, <laughs> right. there, there's some yeah. weird stuff at the end that, and that's, that's my problem with this movie. The whole, literally like the first hour is, is resting on uh, James Lauren's vamping. And, a little bit. I mean, I do like I, I do like the uh, the the pimp Zorro. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy him. I enjoy a lot of the performances of the prostitutes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think individually all the scenes are fine. My thing for me, just specifically, I just think they should have introduced the Frankenhooker more towards the exact middle of the movie as opposed to the towards the end. It takes him almost halfway through the movie to get the idea. That's what right, I'm saying yeah. is it's like the whole first half hour to 45 minutes is him like being sad about his fiance getting mowed up. And I'm like, OK, that should have been five minutes. Let's get to the <laughs> Frankenhooker. You know what I mean? Like, I. Yeah, that's I mean, what for I'm a movie called Frankenhooker. I was expecting more Frankenhooker, but I enjoyed it for what it is. Um, I, I also I, I quite enjoy the uh, director's first film, Basket Case, um, which I think has a little bit more low-budget charm uh, in that one than this one. And and mm. that one, um, I mean, you can definitely tell it's the same guy. He has a very similar sensibility uh, in both, and they're both kind of like horror comedies about like misunderstood loners. But I enjoy his sensibility, and I think that – I think in this case, it was more of a meeting of the minds between Frank Cannonlauder and – and Lloyd Kaufman at Troma, who's just like, well, we'll, you know, this is kind of our bread and butter. And I felt, mm-hmm. and I feel like Henenlotta brought more like actual charm and comedy to it yeah, than just shock value stuff that, and there's some funny stuff in some Troma movies, but I mean, I think in a lot of, in a lot of the case, most Troma movies are just trying to gross you out. I think this movie actually is interested in being an effective comedy. Yeah, okay. That's fair. That is a fair assessment. I I honestly think if it wasn't for like the first 20 minutes after the cold open, uh I probably would have liked this more cuz I was getting pretty bored by the the shtick. Um again, once he starts like once he comes up with the idea and he's like, "Ah, all right, I'll 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 build her out of Oh, but I can't do that." You know, like once he gets there, yeah, I'm like, yeah. okay, now this is a movie. Now we have an actual story. Yeah, it, it takes a little time to get going. That's, it takes a that's lot for of sure. time to get going. Uh, I thought the cold open was pretty funny in a weird oh. schlocky. Also, uh, there's this weird joke at the beginning about Patty Mullen weighing too much. And they've obviously got her in like a padded suit. But even then, I'm like, she's still gorgeous. Uh, right, yeah. This is absolutely ridiculous. She's like, um, she looks like a model. Yeah. Well, I believe she was a Playboy model. Like I, that I would not she, surprise me. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but she gives, I mean, especially as well, Frankenhooker, she gives an incredible, like, a physical comedy performance. Yeah, she does some really funny, like, character stuff that, in mm-hmm. like, her lines are kind of just, like, repeating all these things that the hooker said earlier in the evening. And I thought that was kind of one of the better sources of comedy was her saying, like, these things out of context. Mm-hmm. And I believe they like, used to have, like, a pull string Frankenhooker doll that would say some of these things. Well, that's weird. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is one of the bigger like uh, trauma successes outside of outside of uh, Toxic Adventure. I I I will say I can't in good conscience recommend this to anyone. Um, if you're if you understand trauma and you understand their sensibility, uh, mm. I think you'll you know, and you enjoy that, you'll probably have a good enough time. Um, but for just like sort of the average, I don't know, movie watcher, I don't even know who that is. Uh, I, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend it. I think it's fine for what it is. I think, I think it's better than you're selling it. I think it is, I think it's pretty funny. I don't think it's like a perfect movie by any means, but I do think that it's, I think if you like cult movies, I think if you like camp Sure, I think that's what I'm saying. If you yeah. if you're down for that if I mean, but here's the thing, if you're down for that kind of thing, you probably would be more interested in a movie called Frankenhooker. Uh, right. So, sure. If it's kind of on your radar, you'll probably get what you want out of it. Uh mm-hmm. if not, I would say you're fine missing this one. You're not necessarily losing anything. I th- I think it's better than you're selling it. I mean, I think even the stuff with just um, the lead character vamping is funny enough to keep me engaged. I got pretty bored. I thought <laughs> I thought anytime he was with another character, it worked. I just think there's there's a solid chunk of like 15, 20 minutes where he's just by himself mumbling. And I think that mostly did not work. But I don't think it's his fault. I think it's that he, they literally told him nothing to do they're just like just go and he's like probably you just just want me to like mumble science stuff Uh, yeah okay yeah Yeah, probably a little bit i do think that basket case is a better movie i've not seen brain damage which is kind of in the same vein as basket case but i um i i want to i will um but uh but yeah i enjoyed frankenhooker uh next week we actually have a guest and I will conceal their identity until the actual episode comes out. But um, they have Fade to Black from 1980 as the streaming homework for next week. Um, so that is what we will be talking about. And Keith, when you come back the week after next, what is the streaming homework? When I come back, we're going to watch Behind the Mask. The Rise of, I think it's The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is streaming on Shudder. It's a, it's a mockumentary about a rising serial killer, I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I've heard a lot about this movie and been curious about it for a long time. So I'm, I'm excited to finally watch it. But um, it's okay. streaming on Shudder, the, Behind the Mask. 
All right. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies or topics that we brought up on this podcast, you can reach us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC uh, Cassidy. Um, and be sure to leave us a a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over at whichever podcaster you prefer, um, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, or Google Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. And that is the episode. Want a date? Looking for some action? Need some company? 